0: You're listening to a Cyberwire podcast from N2K Networks, powered by Dragos.
1: It's April 5th, 2023, and you're listening to Control Loop. In today's OT cybersecurity briefing, the Vulcan Papers. The Cyberspace Solarium Commission recommends that CISA set up a testbed to improve maritime cybersecurity. Gregos's CEO on critical infrastructure cybersecurity. The JCDC's pre-ransomware notification efforts. Today's guest, Mike Hoffman, is technical leader for global services at Dragos and a SANS instructor. Mike will be discussing challenges carrying vulnerability management. In the learning lab, Dragos' VP for product and industry market strategy, Mark Urban, concludes his two-part discussion about industrial cyber threat intel and collective intelligence with Seth Lacey, who's a principal threat hunter at Dragos. NTC Vulcan, a Moscow-based IT consultancy, has been exposed as a major contractor to all three of the principal Russian intelligence services, the GRU, the SVR, and the FSB. Vulcan's specialty is the development of tools for cyber attack. Der Spiegel, one of a group of media outlets that broke the story, sources it to a major leak, stating, This is all chronicled in 1,000 secret documents That include 5,299 pages full of project plans, instructions, and internal emails from Vulcan from the years 2016 to 2021. Despite being all-in-Russian and extremely technical in nature, they provide unique insight into the depths of Russian cyber warfare plans. In a militarized country that doesn't just fight with warplanes, tanks, and artillery, but with hackers and software. The Vulcan papers reveal that the company is engaged in supporting a full range of offensive cyber operations. Its services and products extend to espionage, disinformation, and disruptive attacks intended to sabotage infrastructure. And the company also provides training to its customers in the security and intelligence organs. The U.S. Cyberspace Solarium Commission 2.0 has published a report calling for the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency – to set up a maritime equipment testbed to enhance maritime cybersecurity, FedScoop reports. The report states, The program can begin by testing for cybersecurity vulnerabilities in foreign-manufactured cranes used in U.S. ports, as mandated by the National Defense Authorization Act of the fiscal year 2023, and then expand into broader systemically important maritime OT. Drago CEO Robert M. Lee on March 23rd testified before the Senate Committee on Energy and Natural Resources to discuss cybersecurity vulnerabilities in the United States' energy infrastructure. Lee first pointed out that the ICS threat landscape shifted irreversibly last year due to the emergence of PipeDream, a malware framework capable of launching repeatable attacks across the OT ICS industry. Lee stated that PipeDream initially targeted energy assets but can work in almost all OT environments, including military weapons systems. Lee then discussed how the government should focus on efforts that have been successful and avoid duplicating resources or guidance, stating, "...we need to regulate towards outcomes, not prescriptive requirements, using the expertise of the private sector, and be sure they're not counterproductive to what we're trying to accomplish." such as overlapping reporting requirements that cause confusion. Finally, Lee said the government should identify its critical assets, decide which risks to defend against, and allocate the necessary resources to address those risks. He stated, The government must be resourced appropriately to protect its own networks. DOE and CISA both require authorities and resourcing to hold the DOE and government agencies accountable for cybersecurity requirements on new projects such as distributed energy resources. It is difficult for the government to talk credibly on the topic of cybersecurity when its institutions sometimes have less security than most energy sites. The U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Joint Cyber Defense Collaborative is cultivating its pre-ransomware notification capability. JCDC stated, With pre-ransomware notifications, Organizations can receive early warning and potentially evict threat actors before they can encrypt and hold critical data and systems for ransom. The JCDC is a public-private sector information-sharing organization established by CISA in 2021. JCDC Associate Director Clayton Romans explained in a blog post that pre-ransomware notifications are possible due to tips from the cybersecurity research community infrastructure providers, and cyber threat intelligence companies about potential early stage ransomware activity. Romans added that since the start of 2023, we've notified over 60 entities across the energy, healthcare, water and wastewater, education and other sectors about potential pre-ransomware intrusions, and we've confirmed that many of them identified and remediated the intrusion before encryption or exfiltration occurred. Mike Hoffman is technical leader for global services at Dragos and a SANS instructor. Today, he discusses challenges carrying vulnerability management.
2: When I think about uh, vulnerability management, um, especially in the OT side, uh, you know, a lot of times we, we often consider, um, you know, vulnerability as something, some weakness in a system. And, and a lot of times we, we like to classify vulnerability as, as something that's, that's the same throughout the environment. And, and the thing is, though, is when you consider OT sites and, and systems, um, a vulnerability in one system, uh, depending upon how that system is used and so forth, may not be the same throughout the, the entire environment. So it's it's very much, um, you know, you, we have to really take that step back and understand how systems are actually being used, where they're being used at, uh, to understand the vulnerability a little bit more holistically I think context is often extremely key um, when we think about this. Um, one vulnerability is not the same as the other, and and one system and how it's used is not the same as the other.
1: So is this a matter of you know the the same vulnerability in a system that's keeping track of how many snacks there are in a vending machine is has a different potential impact than the
2: same vulnerability with a, a system that's keeping an eye on a turbine? Yeah, exactly. And, and that's one of the challenges I think. So if we take a step back from this a little bit, when we consider vulnerability management, oftentimes we we think about vulnerabilities as it, it's a patch. It's something that some researchers found, some you know a company may has discovered this this vulnerability to a piece of software or hardware or even firmware. And and oftentimes um, you know we we like to again treat these as the same. So normally when people think about vulnerabilities, we're all used to. Patching our phones, patching our computers. I mean, everybody's familiar with this idea of keeping our systems up to date, latest and greatest, um, you know, features and so forth. The challenge is, though, is when we think about this and when we apply that back, and we pull it back down to OT. Those systems sometimes can be patched; sometimes they can't. Also, when when we talk about the particularities, a lot of times when we think about you know, we need to go, you know, patch this Windows server out there. That, that server, depending upon how it's used, depending upon how the actual application is being used, can, can have uh, no impact at all. It can have a significant impact. A lot of times when we think about some of our systems, may, they may be used for remote access on, on a Windows server, or it could be for a file transfer s- solution. Some of those systems you could patch every month, wouldn't be a big pro- deal. But that same device or that same VM that's running in the OT space may actually be running your part of your your DCS um, software. That one may be a little more challenging to patch. So when we think about these vulnerabilities, um, they could be the same vulnerability across a machine. But you can't take the idea that we're going to go out and fix these the exact same way, the exact same frequency, and so forth. We have to take that nuanced approach.
1: And how do you recommend that folks come at this? in, in terms of prioritizing what they do come at?
2: Yeah, it's, it's a great question. One of the one of the best questions out there is is how do you deal with this? Um, first of all, you have to you have to know it, right? So a lot of times when we when we take a step back, we consider vulnerabilities. It's all about knowing what you have first. And and there's all there's a strong argument out there around well. You know, before we do vulnerability management, you have to have an inventory of your systems and what's out there, and and so you can inventory it a number of different ways. But once you get that inventory and you find this vulnerability, it's like, then what? You know, the struggle is is do we um you know do we we, do we correct it now? Do we somehow you know do we mitigate by patching? Do we mitigate by other means? Do we have other compensating controls out there? And which system do we touch first? One of the things that, that I like to to when, when I when I'm in a classroom setting or if I'm in a you know working with customers, is that always think about what systems are interconnected with other systems, and in the OT space, this thing about you know we've had a, for a number of years, uh, we've been interconnecting and um, bringing together the OT and the IT space very very tightly. I would say, you look at a lot of industries out there, you'll have um, You know, you have recipe movement, you'll have custody transfer measurements, you have environmental measurements, all kinds of things. You talked about your little snack machine. Even to do that, in a lot of manufacturing environments, you have recipes coming down or or orders coming down on how much of widget X to make. That is all interconnected. And those systems that are, are transferring data and information back and forth to the IT space are the ones that are actually the most exposed. So this, the idea of exposure is very important when you think about vulnerabilities. What systems could be impacted first? What systems are more vulnerable to external business side or even cloud-connected systems? Those are the systems that I would want to consider first and patch first and or mitigate first. After that, when you think about this, this space, the further you go down in the networks, there's already compensating measures in place there or should be. And if not, we need to look at other things that we can do to detect certain type of activities.
1: I'm wondering. I mean, do you have a, a certain amount of uh, you know, sympathy for folks who are who look at their situation and they say, "Better safe than sorry." You know, you know, going back to that that snack machine. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna patch that anyway because it is connected to the to the greater whole, and I'd rather take care of it than and know that it's done than than not. Do you find that folks often approach things with that kind of a mindset?
2: Absolutely, and and this kind of goes back to especially when you have um, you know companies that with their their OT teams you know coming to, coming together, maybe sometimes even being um, you know driven from the IT side, the IT perspective, it's always patch often and, and, and patch fast. Uh, when, when a vulnerability hits, you you know the first thing they do is they go scan their environments from maybe a vulnerability scanner using endpoint agents. Scan quickly, assess where they're at, and then patch it as fast as you can. Taking that same mindset in the OT space, it's kind of like you're, you said: it's better safe than sorry. Well, we should just patch as fast as we can, or, or you know, the, maybe the 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 risk of unpatching, you know, it's something that we don't know. So, it, you know, patch is something that we can do. And so, I actually did this in a, a prior role that I was at, working at a plant. Is 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 there so much pressure at that time? To to go patch our systems. And it felt like that's all I did for uh, you know, 70, 80% of my time was out patching all the time. And the problem with that is, is sometimes there's so much focus on keeping our systems patched and so forth. That first of all, there's only so much time in a day. There's so many resources. And is that really the most effective use of your resources to constantly patch? Also, there's there's oftentimes, and this is actually, you know, being seen in, you know, like Dragos here review reports and so forth, that Not all patches correct the the actual root cause solution. So we may be thinking that we're correcting something when we're actually not, or not fully correcting something. And then the patch can break something. So a number of years ago, and this has actually happened multiple different times, a little communication protocol called OPC that relies on DCOM. Microsoft has historically been fixing a lot of some vulnerabilities within DCOM. But the problem is, is, is folks have in the past, implemented this maybe incorrectly or insecurely. And, and so as these patches are have been applied, become breaks. That means your interconnectivity between different systems break. A lot, lot of plant disruptions and so forth. So patching has a great chance of breaking a lot of our older ICS applications. And so we have to be very, very careful about this mindset that yeah, we might be fixing this small securities problem, but we may be creating a huge impact to our plant production and so forth. So there's there's always a give and take here. And and going after patching all the time is maybe not the most effective way to spend our time and resources. It's not a bad thing. We need to be doing it, but it's yet it's it's not the the fix-all solution.
1: You know, taking this sort of approach, this this risk-based approach, is this how does this align with the existing culture in the OT space? Does it does it mesh, or is it counter, or
2: does it fit somewhere in between? I think it does. When when we think about um, uh, sites, are used to managing risk, and that's what they do day in and day out. Um, when you, when you consider most of our industrial sites, finery chemical plant, uh, you know, high voltage uh, transmission, distribution, so forth. Uh, generation. We, we are used to dealing with very, very risky environments. Uh, the nature of critical infrastructure, and so when we think about you know patching, everything that we do is should be from that risk perspective. That what are we really trying to mitigate? Um, are, are you know is this is, is there another way? So so I think you know thinking about a risk based you know way of coming about it. Um, anytime you go out to a site and you talk about this is a risk that that is we're trying to mitigate. This is a risk that you know we could be causing the harm we could be impacting the site. A lot of times, you know, especially when I've done this before, um, again I lived you know this patching uh, issue many many years. Is that you have to take different you know you have to take different decisions on some systems we can auto patch um, that, that are very very low risk. Uh, if, if that system goes offline, I, I don't care. Uh, somebody may, you know, some may cause somebody a bad day, an engineer, but it's not going to affect the plant. But the minute that I begin to go to different systems that will have a higher effect, that's when we really need to bring in other groups. Uh, you need to talk to your operators, you need to talk to other staff to, to, to understand the risk that is there. Again, always test before you do something, always make sure you have a backup before you apply the patch. But, but still, that sometimes you have to take that decision that we're not going to do this today. We're not going to do this next month. We may have to wait until five years, until this, this part of the plant will, is down for maintenance, until I can actually apply this firmware or software patch. And so everything should be taken through the lens of that risk, um, that understanding of the risk of it, what you're, what you're actually mitigating, um, and so forth. So absolutely, this resonates with folks at SITES.
1: In today's Learning Lab, Dragos' VP of Product and Industry Market Strategy, Mark Urban, concludes his two-part discussion about industrial cyber threat intel and collective intelligence with Seth Lacey, who is a principal threat hunter at Dragos.
3: This is Mark Urban with another episode of the Learning Lab on Control Loop, and today we're going to talk a little bit about the collective intelligence, meaning when different organizations are able to pool uh, anonymized information between themselves to increase the effectiveness. And I'm joined for this topic by Seth Lacey. Uh, Seth, could you introduce yourself? What you what you do at Drago's, please?
0: Yeah, so uh, at Drago's, I'm a Principal threat hunter, uh, which means I kind of track the uh, adversarial groups that are uh, focused on uh, industrial networks and trying to both uh, penetrate and in some cases uh, disrupt those networks.
3: Neighborhood keeper, that's, that's what we're talking about in the Dragos context. What makes it unique? So certainly the, the no trust approach to it. What other aspects of neighborhood keeper are, are unique to the system?
0: Yeah, so I, th- I think another interesting thing that that no trust approach allows is that that trusted advisor uh, uh, part that I discussed, um, which I think is a really important and unique aspect of the program because you know, it allows the participation of these trusted advisors that if the information was more detailed, if if identities weren't stripped out of the data, might not you know be as possible for them to participate, right? And so. By having their participation, the ISACs, the CERT, some government partners, um, it la- it allows the advisors to disseminate information on threats, trends, and uh, maybe research they've conducted to the broader neighborhood keeper community. But the other thing that it provides is an avenue for participants to submit targeted kind of encrypt- encrypted requests for assistance to advisors or other participants in a time of need. Right. So, you know, if, if a participant, um, finds themselves in, in a bad situation, and they say, "Hey, you know, like I, I need some help." They have an avenue to reach out and, and uh, ask for that help from some of these trusted advisors, or you know, from other participants in the program. All while maintaining that level of anonymity, kind of right up to that point uh, of needing to ask for for help or aid.
3: Right, because if you're asking for help, people are going to want to know a little bit more about you before they respond to that. Right. Um, so yeah, and, and I, I think the other thing it, it should you know within the context of this particular show, it, it might be apparent, but I'll just call it out this is also focused on industrial security, right? Uh, industrial control systems, operational technology, and the unique information base and intelligence that is kind of shared and detected in that context rather than on the rather than on the information technology side. is that it's an industrial focus, right?
0: Yep, absolutely. And that's, you know, that's one of the other, you know, really key, uh, points of Neighborhood Keeper is that it does have that OT network focus, right? And that's, you know, that's something that sets it apart, uh, again, from a lot of the other sharing programs is, you know, Neighborhood Keeper does have that focus on specifically the, the OT network segment, um, in in these organizations, right? It's, it's not interested in, um, monitoring or, uh, collecting anything on, you know, what's, what's going on on the IT side of the network. You know, at Dragos, we are really uh, focused on adversaries that, that want to target OT networks and, and want to, in a lot of cases, uh, disrupt operations. And so in the same way, uh, Neighborhood Keeper focuses on that OT network segment.
3: Right. So the industrial control systems, the operational technology and electrical utilities, oil and gas pipelines, refineries, uh, extraction sites in uh, in water systems and wastewater systems, in manufacturing, uh, in, you know, whether it's chemical or pharma or automotive or, uh, you know, as well as in, you know, so we also see operational technology deployed in building automation and building management systems. Uh, and it's just a very unique environment, you know, compared to or contrasted to the more Kind of broadly, resourced information technology. So it's just that's just my 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 quick sixty second uh, bring up of the industrial side versus uh, versus the IT side that that Neighborhood Keeper is is focused on. So if you if you look at so if Neighborhood Keeper is about information sharing, it's about kind of sharing the telemetry. uh, It's about being able to ask for help. What what makes Neighborhood Keeper a useful tool for network defenders?
0: Yeah. So I, I mean, you know, a lot of what it comes back to is again talking about the data availability, right? What what is your your scope of visibility and and understanding of what's going on in the community? So, you know, one of the the amazing things that Neighborhood Keeper can provide is is a certain amount of context for what network defenders are observing within their own OT environment, right? So um if if you're a network defender, you've got Drago's platform. You you see uh, a type of detection fire. Um, you suddenly have a place you can go if you are not familiar with that detection um, and, are, and are not really sure how to interpret it. You have a place you can go to get a little bit more context. Right? Is, is this something that's being seen across the wider community, or is, is this detection? specific to my environment at this point in time. And so, you know, I think that level of context is one of the main things that uh, Neighborhood Keeper can provide. But, you know, again, kind of bringing it back to to where we started with uh, threat hunting and, and trying to move to a more proactive approach to network defense. You know, some of these use cases, in terms of context, is, is, are again reactive, right? They're a little bit more passive, and so uh, you know, something we've been looking a lot about, um, or looking a lot at, and and actually um, publishing some blogs on is how to you know use the Neighborhood Keeper data more proactively, right? How to integrate uh, some of the context and information uh, available within Neighborhood Keeper to inform uh, threat hunts and generating these hypotheses, you know, working to preempt the adversaries before they can have that disruptive impact. And, you know, a lot of this is part and parcel to um, moving up the maturity curve for an OT cybersecurity program for OT network defense.
3: Okay, so you, Matt, you mentioned passive and active kind of use cases. Can you, can you expand on those a little bit?
0: Yeah, so, you know, a passive use case would be like, hey, you know, I, I'm uh I've seen something uh fire in, in my uh platform instance, and I'm going to uh, I don't really know how to interpret this uh detection. So I'm going to take a look in the neighborhood keeper data and see, hey, is this something that uh is a really common detection in a lot of environments? Uh or is this detection relatively unique right is it mapped to specific adversary ttp's or is this uh maybe more of like a dual use potentially capability like uh port scanning or seeing uh smb or rdp in the environment that might have a, a really benign uh explanation but again you're you're essentially taking that detection and reacting to it right one thing you know, we're, we're trying to encourage and kind of you know give Participants, uh, some food for thought in in terms of how to use the data actively is, you know, how do I get in front of the adversary, right? H- how do I get from reacting uh, to the adversary in my environment to instead maybe trying to preempt the adversary, right? So, an example of this might be, hey, you know, I'm I'm instead of taking a detection that I've seen within my own environment, I'm going to go kind of proactively look at what's going on in Neighborhood Keeper, right? And so, as I look at kind of what's trending across the broader community within the Neighborhood Keeper data, perhaps there is a trending detection that's associated with a specific adversary, and it's a lateral movement technique, right? So, I'm going to you know maybe take that knowledge and start to try to build a hypothesis, right? So, maybe I look back at, at some of the some of the previous CTI information I have on on the tactics that that um, adversary uses, and I say, okay, so so what are uh, maybe some taxic- tactics that that adversary uses for uh, initial access, right? My hypothesis is that these lateral movement signatures are are or detections are trending within Neighborhood Keeper because. This is part of an adversary campaign. That adversary is, is already active right, in, in other networks uh, within the community, and I haven't seen them within my environment yet, but the likelihood is there, the possibility is there. So I want to really understand uh, in the past what that adversary has done for initial access and start developing some hypotheses based on my knowledge of my network, my network topology, how that actor might uh, try to gain initial access to the OT segment of my network. And so I'm going to go look at things like engineering workstations, jump boxes, a- and see if I can find that adversary before they're trying to move laterally within the OT network, maybe when they're, they're just gaining initial access to that OT network segment, and, and hopefully preempt them before they have an opportunity to gain a foothold or, or much less uh, you know, have some kind of impact or uh, disruption to operations.
3: So so passive is is seeing something in your own environment and reacting to that and and leveraging Neighborhood Keeper to kind of see if there's a prevalence out in the world. And if you change to active, then it's like, hey, let me go look at what's happening in, in my broader community. Let me take some indications from there. Now let me go look and scrub my own environment and more actively kind of hunt within there. Two good, interesting kind of use cases for for the technology on kind of the defender side of it, uh, if, if you look through the lens of threat intelligence generally and threat hunting specifically, what what was the motivation of building this really?
0: Yeah, you know, I, I think you know the the motivation uh, obviously for Neighborhood Keeper was was just to build this environment where uh, uh, data could be. Be shared in a way, particularly on specifically the OT network segment, that just hasn't been possible in the past, right? Because of those privacy and regulatory concerns. And so, you know, as we we've developed Neighborhood Keeper and, and thought about it, you know, one of our main goals is, is to be a, a partner on the journey, right? And and to help organizations, you know, mature. Their OT cybersecurity program as a whole, and and so this is in our mind kind of kind of part and parcel to that, right? It is how do we integrate Neighborhood Keeper into that journey and um, demonstrate ways that uh, the data within Neighborhood Keeper can help you move along?
3: Gotcha. So that's that. That's the benefit to the participants is just get get the benefit of that. Where. Where do you see neighborhood keeper going in the f- future really? Are there any, you know, what are what are the goals of, of of where this evolves to?
0: Yeah, so you know, uh another aspect of this is, is Having participants use this data in, in an active way, you know, being in the Neighborhood Keeper portal, digging through uh, all the information that's available there, you know, just like just like a neighborhood in the real world, right, or any community, um, having a more active participant base just makes the community stronger, right? Uh, and so, I, you know, I think the goal moving forward is obviously to continue to grow the the size of the community the the size of the participant pool uh you know as they say you know <laughs> knowledge and data are, are power and so you know the broader uh that participant base is, then the stronger the community as a whole can be right and and so with things like the the trusted advisors and um you know some of these more uh, proactive approaches to defense and using Neighborhood Keeper data, the more people we have participating, the more people we have engaged, uh, the more powerful uh, that, that community of collective defense becomes.
3: Seth Lacey, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Seth, a uh, threat hunter uh, focused on industrial here at Dragos and talking about not only threat hunting and threat intelligence, but collective defense with Neighborhood keepers. Seth Thanks very much for enlightening us about this today.
0: No, thanks for the opportunity. I, I really enjoyed talking about it.
1: And that's Control Loop, brought to you by the CyberWire and powered by Dragos. For links to all of today's stories, check out our show notes at thecyberwire.com sound design for this show is done by elliot peltzman with mixing by trey hester our senior producer is jennifer Ivan. our dragos producers are joanne rosh and mark urban our executive editor is peter kilpey and i'm dave fitner thanks for listening we'll see you back here next time